This episode contains references to suicide. Listener discretion is advised. I was titrated on and off like 12 different medications over nine months uh, for depression, anxiety, and insomnia. This is Katie Parr, a 34-year-old Texan. She's a bleeding-heart liberal who works in the oil and gas industry. As an adolescent, Katie navigated panic attacks and melancholy. And by her 20s, her mind was thick with anxiety. There was always kind of that, like, call of the void. This kind of voice that was like, you know, you can just, like, escape hatch out of this. Katie's efforts to address her mental health left her in a disturbing place. I, I was in the shower, and I just kind of caught myself tracing the veins on my arm and thinking, like, I can just go grab a knife right now and be rid of this. And, you know, when I realized, like, that's what I was thinking and feeling and doing, I was like, I can't, this is not right. And that's when I made the decision to stop seeing my psychiatric provider. Traditional medicine wasn't working for her. I do not want to shit on psychiatry. I think that it is a tool that is as useful as any other tool. But I think that this provider was not responsible. And it caused some trauma for me. We kept adding in and adding in and then taking out and taking out. And it took a massive toll on my emotional and mental wellness. In retrospect, I consider my psychiatric provider a pusher which is scary. Versions of Katie's story are common. And I don't just mean that she's among the one in four U.S. adults suffering from a diagnosable mental health issue. Rather, it's that she, like so many, had run up against the limits of the treatments on offer. For all the stunning scientific gains of the last quarter century, there's been little progress when it comes to actually helping individuals in distress. We know more than ever about the anatomy of despair, but the suicide rate has soared by 33%. There are countless people like Katie who have taken prescription drug upon drug, but to little avail. And this is where psychedelics can come in. Unlike the antecedents lined up in our medicine cabinets, the Prozac and Zoloft and Xanax, psychedelics appear to work almost instantly and sometimes require as little as a single dose. In the past couple of years, you might have heard promotions like this. So we're supercharging therapy by using ketamine to open the mind to go deeper, faster, and quicker to... Ketamine is the first psychedelic to be used broadly in mental health care. And it's an unusual one. It's actually a dissociative anesthetic, which makes it great for use in hospitals and veterinary clinics. In 2019, the FDA approved a version of ketamine for treatment-resistant depression. Doctors say it's a potential game-changer for patients who don't benefit from other medicines. It's also been a game-changer for entrepreneurs. Before 2019, ketamine clinics were a rarity, but now they're hundreds, by some estimates thousands, most of which are for-profit operations. Eventually, Katie found a new provider 
And when a ketamine-assisted therapy clinic run by Field Trip Health opened in Houston in 2021, her therapist suggested she give it a try. Field Trip currently runs 11 clinics across the United States and Canada, and each is outfitted like the one Katie found herself in, with potted plants and pleasing tones and vaguely mid-century seating. The company's website boasts of intentionally designed spa-like retreats, and what they offer is a boutique service. Katie paid $5,000 out of pocket for six rounds of ketamine injections, administered as she sat in an ergonomic chair under a weighted blanket while a curated playlist piped through her headphones. I kind of like ruminate on experiences or situations or what I should have said and didn't say. I still am pretty hypervigilant, but increasingly as I... As I continued through my treatment, I was finding like a big, big overarching message was don't take everything so seriously and let things go and just be present. Ketamine may more consistently achieve what other frontline pharma doesn't, rapid and sustained relief. It's taking enjoyment and small pleasures without prompting by myself, you know, like I would take my dog out for a walk and just kind of marvel at how cute and sweet he is. And like have these little small moments of joy and satisfaction and contentment or fulfillment that previously hadn't really been within my reach. Ketamine is a current darling. But it's not the only recreational drug going mainstream. MDMA, DMT, LSD, magic mushrooms, the substances that fuel Burning Man are leading a revolution in psychiatry. And Wall Street is paying close attention. It's boom times for the psyche. Crypto bros, biotech analysts, weed industry veterans, Reddit investors, they're pouring billions into psychedelic treatments, most of which aren't even legal. Yet. It's a new take on the business trip designed to help workers find clarity in their thinking. People see this as the next get rich quick mechanism. MDMA is the latest illegal drug clearing hurdles for widespread medicinal use. I'm Catherine Rowland. This is Seeking. And today we're looking at the psychedelic gold rush. Psychotherapists are the shamans of our time. Like, a hundred years ago, you went to the priest and confessed. Now you go to your shrink, yeah? Like, it's the same, yeah? And, like, I can't wait that these substances are broadly available. That's German billionaire investor Christian Angemeyer speaking from his London home. He's talking about Compass Pathways, a company that he helped launch in 2016. Christian is one of the single biggest financial forces bringing psychedelics into the medical mainstream. Five, six years back, when I first thought about and started talking to people about could there be a potential way to bring these substances back, and literally every single person told me no. Don't even talk about it. It's going to ruin your career. And then fast forward, like September 2020, 
a company goes public. If a magic mushroom company can go public, yeah, then everything is possible in life, yeah, in a good way. Just a few years ago, the mere phrase psychedelic business would have been a contradiction in terms. There were none. We're talking about scheduled drugs, untouchable investments. But now there are around 1,400 companies doing everything from running ketamine clinics to conducting clinical trials to training future psychedelic therapists. Of the give or take 50 companies that are publicly traded, three were initially valued at more than $1 billion. And Christian is behind two of them. And we're working relentlessly on bringing psychedelics back into the medical realm as a treatment for various mental health issues. Christian might sound like an evangelist. He has a tattoo of the chemical symbol of psilocybin on his arm. But he's first and foremost an entrepreneur. Out of the gate, he just saw the world in terms of opportunity. My mind works like I I look at something and I see the business behind. I remember when I was seven, I think, or six, I went the first time to a cinema and I was like, wow, people are paying like to go into there. Like, and then they watch a film and my parents have a TV. So I literally took the TV remote away and told my parents, like, they need to pay now to watch movies. I'm going to run a cinema with six or seven. Like everything like which I was doing in a childish way, obviously. And I think everybody has that calling. Christian's calling was business. It wasn't just the remote. As a child, Christian sold vegetables from the family garden to his parents. He sold lemonade to the neighbors, lollipops to schoolmates. Everything was distilled through the lens of capital. His parents were baffled as to how their son turned out this way. They lived in a 90-person town deep in Bavaria. Going to Munich is like, I don't know, for an Idaho kid going to New York, yeah? And we went there and there was this famous bookshop back then. And I go into that bookshop and there was this big sort of wall of books of the same book was a promotion of uh, a book from Napoleon Hill, which is called Think and Grow Rich. And it was literally like an epiphany and something was drawing me to that. And I was like, wow, that's it, this book, I need to buy this book. Think and Grow Rich is an early primer for what was later popularized as the law of attraction. That being that positive or negative thoughts affect the outcomes of our lives. Accordingly, we can think ourselves to health, to security, to abundance. Christian started his first biotech company at the age of 20, and his portfolio is now very contemporary. Bitcoin, space travel, movies, COVID, life extension. But initially, psychedelics were not on his radar. Growing up, he was never interested in drugs. He's never had a sip of alcohol. Until 28, he'd never even had a cup of coffee. But then he winds up at this high-power event and is seated at dinner next to a famous neuroscientist. So in the whole evening, we talked about drugs and about the bad ones, which is practically everything. And at the end of the evening, he said, there's just one group of drugs for the better thing, but like, let's not call it that which you should do, which is psychedelics. And I was like, you're fucking insane. Like, this is the schedule one drug. And he was like, no, no. And like, I could help you. Like, I was like, no way. Like, I'm happy. I'm not dumb. Like, why jinx my brain? 
Despite his skepticism, Christian was intrigued. So he sent me all the stuff. And I can read studies because, again, that's a part of my life as biotech. So I read it and I was utterly fascinated because, like, they practically have zero to very, very low risk, yeah? And then they have these sort of potential upside. Still, he didn't race off to experiment. For Christian, the stars had to align. So, and then one year later, I was with my best friends who are a little bit hippie in the Caribbean. And they were like, by the way, Christian, we do have magic mushrooms. I know you don't do it, but we just want to mention it. We're going to do it tomorrow. I deeply believe that if you have an open heart, you see these signs. And and I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm going to do it. That first trip was overpowering. He found it hard to put into words. What I want to say is that the experience is so profound and deep, but I could say now the world we as God, like, or is it the divine, or is my own soul? And then the question is, is there even a difference? Like, yeah. This born capitalist emerged with a new take on the meaning of life. Life is not a competition. And I know it sounds so cheesy, but I think at the very end, it's all about love. Okay, this must be made available to many, many more people. But this was when mushrooms were still underground party favors. They weren't a hot commodity for investors. So the thought lingered in the background. But Christian began to change personally. He started tripping a few times a year and in his own way became a bit of a philosopher. It's not about the trip. It's about changing life after it and, and, and becoming a better human being. In his London apartment, he has a statue of Demeter, the Greek goddess of the harvest, who was at the center of the Eleusinian mysteries. Each spring, initiates in her cult would gather and drink kikion, and then madness ensued. Ecstasies, orgies, psychedelic visions. I'm sure this statue had quite the price tag. It's nearly 2,400 years old. But for Christian, it represents how psychedelics are foundational to human history. Plato says that many of his ideas, philosophical ideas, which, by the way, the Western world is built on, partly, he got while partaking in the Eleusinian mysteries, so he got it while tripping. And most things we believe in, if you trace them back, like religion, philosophy, can be traced back to psychedelics. So kind of our whole human existence, even without knowing, and even without maybe not everybody of us having taken psychedelics themselves, we are a product of psychedelic experience. But these inner revelations remained lodged in his private life. Until this one trip. And there the message was, Christian, you have to talk about it to literally everybody. So go out, talk to your friends, talk to your, everybody, go on TV, whatever. Just good things will come out of that, but you can't hold back. That's after the break. Shortly after that last trip, Christian met with a friend, an extremely successful investor named Mike Novogratz. I went into his office and Mike and his very charming, they were like, hey, Christian, like, what's new? 
And I was like thinking in my head, so that's now my first test. Yeah? My, the mission is I need to talk about psychedelics and mushrooms. And I was like, Mike, have you ever talked about magic mushrooms? And he was like, no, not since 20 years in college. Christian shared what he had learned from his extensive reading and experiences. So next morning, my phone is ringing and Mike is on the phone and said, Christian, this is the weirdest coincidence I've ever had. This morning, my sister called me and she's in Bali in a yoga retreat with this crazy couple from London, George and Katya, with whom I found the compass then. And they have an idea how to make uh, psilocybin medically available, but nobody wants to give them money because it's crazy. But to Christian, the idea did not seem crazy. It was like Napoleon Hill was opening the door. Compass Pathways, the company he helped fund for the crazy couple from London in 2016, is now a frontrunner in the world of psychedelic pharma. But Christian didn't stop there. In 2018, he co-founded Atai Life Sciences, where he's also chairman. Atai conducts research on treatments for a range of mental health disorders using other psychedelics. They're formulating novel synthetics. That's modified versions of existing compounds. A pharma firm can't profit off of ayahuasca, say, plucked from the wild. But it can by synthesizing its psychedelic component, DMT and creating new, indefensible intellectual property. This is what gets investors excited. The reason why Atai, I personally believe, will be one of the most valuable companies in the world is because we're making those substances accessible to millions and millions of people via the medical way. During the first psychedelic revolution, back in the 60s and 70s, Alan Watts described these substances as, quote, very bad for business. Tripping was, on an almost fundamental level, seen as counter to capitalism. If you peer deep enough into the system, its flaws and absurdities reduced it to irrelevance. Tune in, drop out, etc. But now, the trip has been repurposed. We don't want to shed our social roles. We want to master them. I talked to some people, they didn't always believe that psychedelics would make you a certain kind of person. They are like, oh, you take so much psychedelics and you're still in the business and you still want to make money and invest. Why are you not running, I don't know, a yoga retreat and check out of all of that? Because aren't psychedelics making you anti-capitalistic? And I think, no, like, it's like, they don't make you anything. The messages of psychedelics might seem universal. We're all one, love is everything, but they're conveyed in your own private language. That's the beauty of psychedelics. They don't manipulate you. They show you what the true calling of yourself and your soul is. So maybe your true calling is to run a yoga retreat or to infuse your art with your newly expanded consciousness or to train to be a shaman. Or maybe, if you were born a capitalist, the divine message is all about money and marketing. Thanks to big investors like Christian and the companies now streaming into the market, 
psychedelics will soon reach more people than ever before. It's already begun with ketamine, and as of this year, 2023, it's starting to happen with psilocybin, and MDMA is likely soon to follow. This has implications for millions of people. A diagnosis of PTSD or treatment-resistant depression may no longer be a years-long sentence. But what's lost and what's gained as these substances become part of the pharmaceutical industry? That's after the break. And by the way, there is also no competition to the shamanistic tradition. Because again, I do believe that there is a calling and that there are people who are drawn to going to the Amazon. When Christian talks about going to the Amazon, he's referring to the ayahuasca retreats led by shamans in South America. We'll visit one in Peru later this season. Westerners are now going to these places in droves. But that's hardly a solution to the global mental health epidemic. But I met really hundreds of people whom I talked about psychedelics. They would never go to a shaman in the Amazon yeah, or to any shaman. They want to do it with their doctor. And why should we withhold that experience, which is, I think, the most um, important experience you can have in your life, from anybody? And why should somebody dictate how it is done? Having experienced psychedelics in a ceremonial setting I worry about what gets lost when ritual is replaced by yet another protocol or prescription. And yet people are in crisis. They need help, and nothing seems to be working. As long as you do it with a good intention, yeah, and as long as you want to help people, the more the merrier. I do believe Christian wants to help people. He's trying to change the world in the way he knows how, by building out an industry. And I'm skeptical on this point. Corporations can certainly do good. But at the end of the day, they are not in the business of healing. They're in the business of making money for their shareholders. It is, and it's still very expensive, by the way. We have already spent hundreds, with an S, of millions of dollars, and we're going to spend four, five hundred million dollars yeah, to make these drugs available or therapeutics available. And I couldn't do that even if I wanted, so I, need, I had to raise money from people and they want money back and it's completely justified. They get more money back if we're successful. So without the sometimes criticized capitalistic model, these therapeutics wouldn't be available for most of the people. What's this money going towards? To make psychedelics on a mass scale means turning them into standardized products. It means exact dosing with quantifiable benefits and all the risks enumerated at the end of the commercial. It means predictability. But when has a trip ever been predictable? I think there is a lot of excitement around next gens is because first-generation psychedelics, while effective, they do have shortcomings, right? That's Dina Burkitbaeva. Like Christian, she is a true believer in the power of psychedelics to give comfort to those whom standard psychiatry has failed. And like Christian, she is in business with that belief. She is a co-founder and CEO of Freedom Biosciences, 
which is developing ketamine and other psychedelic treatments. She is also the co-founder of SciMed Ventures, a fund investing in psychedelics as well as other emerging mental health tools. So some of the shortcomings are in the medical community, hallucinations are considered a side effect. It's an unwanted side effect. For Dina, the trips of tomorrow won't necessarily require that we dive into the unknown. They'll be more focused, precise, and stripped of unwelcome side effects. Take MDMA, another party drug. It's an empathogen. It creates waves of good feeling. MDMA has also proven to be very effective in addressing PTSD. It lowers our defenses. It allows people to experience trust and love without fear. But to Dina, there's still drawbacks. So on average, MDMA and psilocybin therapies last, you know, five to six hours. And um, that's a very involved experience. So a patient, you know, may need to be accompanied by two therapists. They may need to spend the night in the clinic. And there's a lot of sort of therapy that happens in between. If you think about costs associated with that, they are immense. Some companies are working on shortening the duration of these trips. MDMA is just one example. Dina envisions a world where people take psychedelics like never before. So the question is really, can psychedelics, non-hallucinogenic psychedelics, bring about the antidepressant effects without the trip, or is the trip necessary? Taking the trip out of psychedelics. I find Dina's question fascinating, but also perturbing. It makes me think of this one description of how psychedelics work, that they essentially level the peaks and trenches of your mind, allowing you to leap across your consciousness. Could that happen without the visions, all the swirling mystery? You know, we can have a treatment that's much closer to what the patient population and physicians are used to, right? You kind of, you take a pill a day and you can go about your day. The argument here being, why not just cut to the chase? Bear us the mystical visions. We need a more reliable Prozac. Treatment shouldn't be limited to those with means or connections. People with resources have the opportunity to go and fly to Peru or Mexico to be able to do an ayahuasca ceremony. But what about all the other people, right, who are struggling potentially more because they're, you know, living in more disadvantaged communities, right? They, they don't have as many financial or time resources to do this. And to expect for that population to be able to kind of get access to this treatment without having it be FDA-approved and be prescribed and having the stamp of approval of a physician, I think is very low, right? And I think, again, going back to just the resources and the time that it takes to get approval, it has to be done through the capitalist way. As much as this makes me cringe, isn't this idea also great? If there's a way to restore hope and safety to the most wounded among us, of course I want that. But 
would that still get at the root of suffering? As Dina speaks, I keep thinking about the visions I've had of my brother. Psychedelics took me on a journey where I understood his suffering in new ways. Could a pill produce that state of acceptance while I brush my teeth and take the train to work? Maybe. But despite all the money going into making these substances more convenient, psychedelics might not be so readily confined. Researchers studying their therapeutic potential have found over and again that their effect is linked to magnitude. The greater the journey, the stronger the sense of healing. And that's because the trip alters our perspective. But if it's a pill, does that mean we'll just feel better going about our day? No revelation, no big change, business as usual? And what about the way we treat other people? Would we become kinder, more loving, more intolerant of hate? Far away from the boardrooms and the VC funding rounds, newer practitioners believe that's the real purpose of plant medicine. For them, healing is collective, and it's political. Next time, we travel to Baltimore to explore community and psychedelic liberation. Seeking is written and reported by me, Catherine Rowland. Our producers are Hamza Umerji, Rob Dozier, and Lily Thompson. Editing by Grant Irving and Lizzie Jacobs. Our executive producers are Grant Irving and Lizzie Jacobs. Fact-checking by Natsumi Ajisaka. Music by Nolan Schneider. Mixing by Sam Baer. Thanks to our legal team, Rachel Goldberg and Allison Sherry. Special thanks to Tom Koenig and Steve Ackerman. 